Take your Bible this morning to Psalm 101. Psalm 101. Have you ever noticed how differently the Gospels read than everyday Christian life? And it makes a lot of sense that if you're traveling alongside of Jesus, things might be a little bit out of the ordinary. In fact, you would actually call them extraordinary. But the truth is, every Christian today is walking alongside Jesus. We're walking with Jesus just like the disciples did. But our lives read so much differently than that of the disciples. I think there's a reason for that, and we'll discuss that in just a moment. Psalm 101, the Bible says, I will sing of mercy and judgment. Unto thee, O Lord, will I sing. I will behave myself wisely in a perfect way. Oh, when, thou, when will thou come unto me? I will walk within my house with a perfect heart. I will set no wicked thing before mine eyes. I hate the work of them that turn aside. It shall not cleave to me. A froward heart shall depart from me. I will not know a wicked person. Whoso privily slandereth his neighbor, him will I cut off. Him that hath an high look and a proud heart will not I suffer. Mine eyes shall be upon the faithful of the land, that they may dwell with me. He that walketh in a perfect way, he shall serve me. He that worketh deceit shall not dwell within my house. He that telleth lies shall not tarry in my sight. I will early destroy all the wicked of the land, that I may cut off all wicked doers from the city of the Lord. As I mentioned, have you ever noticed how differently the Gospels record the journeys of Jesus and how just alarmingly different they are than the course of our everyday life? What I mean by this is, when's the last time you had ten lepers approach you? When's the last time on your way to church you saw a man blind from his mother's womb on the side of the road begging for just a little bit of help? When is the last time that you encountered such a tragic medical situation? And, 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 and don't get me wrong, they exist in today's world. And don't get me wrong, you may have encountered one yesterday or this week or maybe this month or even this year. There is tragedy in our world and, and we are not foreigners to that. But the point I'm trying to make is this. As we read the Gospels, it appears that every day... Jesus was encountering rather remarkable scenarios that, that, uh, and situations that we just are not accustomed to encountering. All of the sicknesses and illnesses that were so prevalent in that day, Jesus didn't just come up to children that had a little cough and a sniffle. He came up to people that were beyond hope, that the doctors had given up on that were even so ashamed that they themselves couldn't find the courage to speak to Jesus. So they sought only to touch the hem of His garment, knowing that healing could be found in His wings. I mean, we, we, we read of these remarkable stories, and it's as if this is common everyday life for Jesus and His disciples. More than that, 
we read that not only did illnesses and sicknesses prevail in that day, but we find that demonic oppression was quite prevalent. I mean, in Luke chapter 8 alone, the Bible tells us about a woman by the name of Mary Magdalene, who the Bible says the Lord had cast out seven demons from her. I mean, if you don't have one, I guess seven's uh, company. I, you know, I guess it's, it gets a little crowded at seven. Then you come down a few verses later, some 30 verses later, and Jesus lands on the shores of the country of the Gadarenes, and a fellow comes out of the tombs meeting him, and the Bible does not give us the fellow's name. His name could have been Rick. We don't know. But the Bible says when he introduces himself to Jesus, it is the demons speaking, and they say, I am legion. Now, that's a reference to a Roman legion, which, by the way, was accounted in about 5,000 soldiers. So the idea here is, this man not only had one, not only had seven, he could have had upwards of uh, of 5,000 demons living inside of him and possessing his everyday habits. But even if you wanted to go on the most modest expressions, the Bible says that there's 2,000 pigs feeding up on a hillside. Jesus casts out of this man the demons that were in him into the pigs. And even if you just did one demon for every pig, the man was possessed by a minimum of 2,000 demons. Now, I asked you when's the last time you encountered a, a, you know, a pretty devastating sickness, but when's the last time you encountered a de- demon-possessed person? And by this, I do not mean your children. And I can understand where you might come up with that theory. Let me ask you a question. I want you to be very thoughtful as you consider the answer. Do you believe that times have improved morally... Since the time that our Lord walked the earth? So is that to say that demons are just still as prevalent today or even more so than they've ever been? What's interesting is Jesus encounters all of these sicknesses. What becomes very clear in Scripture is the disciples, as they spend more time with Christ, recognize not only that they not no sicknesses as mere misfortune, they recognize them as a part of the sinful condition of man. Because one day they come to a man who's blind and they say, Lord, who did sin, this, this man or his father? They don't even see the sickness as we see it today. They perceive it on a theological level, which is to say, every illness, every malady, every issue that we face today is a result of a sinful condition. Sin is just as prevalent, demons are just as present, and Satan is just as powerful today as he was some 2,000 years ago. So why is it that we think that we don't hear of these things anymore? When Jesus came into the world, the Bible calls Him light. You know what light does? It makes manifest what exists in the darkness. No wonder Jesus encountered demons, because as light exposed darkness, the demons became more clear and seeable. And I'm not trying to scare you today, but my point is this. Our world is absolutely broken beyond repair. Just because we don't hear in the headlines stories like these, 
does not mean that every ba- in, in every back alley of Fort Worth, there is not someone dealing with things just as real and just as serious as these people in Scripture. Our, our world is absolutely immoral. It is so anti-God. It is running at a breakneck pace away from Him. And the, and, and the devil is operating like a grand puppet master. The, the stage of this world. This world is wicked. And the Christian is supposed to live in this world. And the Bible even goes so far as to say, love not the world. Neither the things that are in the world, for all that is in the world is the lust of the eye and the lust of the flesh and the pride of life. If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. So we as Christians live in an absolutely immoral world, broken beyond repair with demons present and sin prevalent and Satan powerful. We live in this absolutely broken place and we are supposed to live for God. Holy people, peculiar, representing the glory of God in this world. We come to this scripture today, and David, most commentators or many commentators believe he is now taking the throne to a united kingdom. See, David was anointed on three different occasions. Back when he was around 15 years old, the prophet Samuel showed up and anointed him as he went through all of Jesse's sons. He says, there's not anyone else. They ran to get David from shepherding. They bring him up and and Samuel anoints David there around 14, 15 years old as a sort of prophetic and destiny type of situation where King Saul was still king. But David was anointed to be destined to be the king one day. Several years later, when King Saul dies, David is anointed for what you could consider the second time. But he is anointed as only the king of the tribe of Judah at Hebron. And he is anointed as king, not of a united kingdom, but of a very divided kingdom. And then... About 15 years after David's initial anointing, he is anointed king of a united kingdom, all the tribes of Israel united under his reign. So in a sense, David had 15 years to consider what type of kingdom he wanted to run. I can just imagine him as, he, as he's out there shepherding those sheep. He's like, you know what, if I was king, I would do it this way. If I was king, I would make this change. And for for 15 years, David had the opportunity to think about what type of kingdom he would run. Most people believe that this chapter is the result of those meditations. He is establishing the type of reign that he will implement. And he is now telling us that there are certain practices for immaculate living... And in a totally immoral world. Notice with me, first of all, this morning. Here's the first practice that David makes for living in an immoral world, trying to be an immaculate king. Number one, there is a we must have a proper concept of God. Notice verse number one reads like this: I will sing of mercy and judgment unto thee, O Lord, will I sing. Essentially, if you boiled it down, here's what David is saying. 
I will worship God on the basis of His holy character. There are many people today that want to worship God however they choose. And they'll do it on their own terms, in their own places, and in their own ways. I remember years ago, a famous TV host was interviewing and and hosting a sort of forum on religion. And the TV host said in that day, she said, well, you get to God your way, and He may get to God His way, and I'll get to God my way. There are many ways that lead to God. Friends, I want to be very clear with you this morning. That is the most untrue statement that has ever been uttered. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. We don't just make up how we want to worship God. God must be worshipped on His own terms. David is here saying, I will worship God in a way that is pleasing to Him and according to what the Scripture teaches me about Him. And he mentions two characteristics of God here. First of all, he mentions mercy. And secondly, he mentions judgment. Now, we are familiar with the term mercy... But it speaks of that goodness of a person who is, over, is willing to overlook injury. Somebody upsets you or offends you. Mercy says, I know probably they, they weren't thinking right. It, it, it tries to overlook the trespass committed. It really at its core speaks of forgiveness. And aren't you thankful this morning that God in heaven, though holy and high and mighty, is a forgiving God? The Bible says, Who is like unto thee, O God, who is willing to pardon iniquity and forgive transgression? That's what the prophet Micah says. That's not New Testament stuff. That's Old Testament stuff. God has always been a forgiving God. And there's nothing you've ever done in your life that you cannot be forgiven of. God wants to forgive. But David not only takes the quality of God's forgiveness, which is rooted in His goodness... He takes the second quality and it is this, judgment. That is another word for justice. She says, that quality, mercy is rooted in God's goodness. Justice, excuse me, justice or judgment is rooted in God's holiness. And what David's pointing at is the fact that God is so complex beyond our understanding. Then the scripture presents him not only as a God that wants to forgive, but as a God that mandates justice. We've come to probably one of the grandest concepts in all the scripture. We find the dichotomy of God mentioned here. How God could require by his law certain things. For instance, God, the word of God didn't just begin when God gave Moses his law. The word of God began in Genesis when he said, Thou shalt not eat of the tree of the fruit of the knowledge of good and evil. Don't eat that tree. That was the word of God. God said, In the day that ye eat of that fruit, ye shall surely die. So God not only gave the command, He gave the consequence. God's law existed in the Garden of Eden. And so when Adam and Eve fell in the garden, God came to them and He was in a great predicament. The predicament was, I gave my command and I gave the consequence and you disobeyed. As a holy God, He has to keep His word. If he doesn't keep his word, he's now a liar. So God's word came. He now has to honor his word. But the problem is, this that put God in a, in a situation because God wants to forgive. God wants to love. God wants to be merciful. 
So you come now to the idea that God is not only a God of judgment and of justice and of law, but He's a God of mercy and grace and understanding. God wanted to forgive, so how could He do it? God's law demanded payment for sin. How could He do it? Well, God's mercy sent Christ in your place. God said, okay, I know that my word mandated death for sin, so here's what I will do. I will become man. And I will die the death that I mandated. And in my death, I will atone for the sins of the ones who committed the trespass. God will extend mercy and God will extend judgment. Years ago, there was a young painter in a community that began to kind of grow a reputation of being quite good. A wealthy and affluent lady in the community had heard of how good his paintings was and were, and for years he had wanted she had wanted a portrait of herself to hang in her home. So she went to the young man and she began to ask if he would paint for her this portrait. Her reputation preceded herself, though, because the lady had been known around the community as being rather difficult to please. Didn't matter what was done, what service was done, or how good it was done, she was just hard to get along with. So at first, the young painter was very apprehensive to doing this for the lady. But because of the lady's financial resources, she kind of spoke to him and convinced him. And eventually, the young painter agreed to paint this portrait for the lady. On the day that the portrait was to be painted, she came in and as it got closer, the young painter got more and more nervous about the whole scenario and fully well expected it to not end well for him. Well, he painted to the very best of his ability, hoping that everything would work out. The lady, after uh, uh, anxiously awaiting her portrait, finally saw it for the first time and her face Uh, showed a look of disbelief. She couldn't believe that the painting didn't resemble her at all. She didn't like it. Though the young man had put great effort into it and had put all of his skill and talent into it, she hated the portrait. She looked at the young man and she said, Sir, this does not do me justice at all. And the man, without thinking, said, Ma'am, I wasn't trying to do you justice. I was trying to show you some mercy. (laughs) The truth is, most of us... If we requested justice, the light would not reflect upon us positively. And God is a God of justice. He is a God that requires the law to be met and law to be kept. But thankfully, God is a God of not only justice, but of mercy. And it's in that mercy that we find acceptance with God. And it is through His Son that we find a right standing with God. And David meditates on all this and he makes a decision. I will sing of mercy and judgment unto thee, O Lord, will I sing. Did you know that our concept of God will set the trajectory for every spiritual decision you ever make? What you believe about God will begin to set the direction of your spiritual life. If you have a low estimation of God's worth and value, guess what? Your life won't be lived for Him. But isn't it interesting when Scripture presents God, He is always high and lifted up, seated on His throne? Isn't it interesting when you go to God's city in Jerusalem, it's on Mount Zion. By the way, it was not always the highest place, but if you went to Jerusalem, you ascended up to Jerusalem. You always went up to Jerusalem. Why? Because if you want to meet with God, you must ascend to where He is. David had a right 
spiritual ascent of God in his mind. And he put God on the right plane. So many people want to put God in the captain's seat, God deserves, or in the co pilot seat. God desires to be the captain, the number one in your life. And if he's in the right place, that will set the tone for every decision you ever make. So we first of all must have a proper concept of God. But secondly, David decides to have a perfect character. Notice in verse number 2. I will behave myself wisely in a perfect way. Oh, when wilt thou come unto me, I will walk within my house with a perfect heart. He says, I will behave myself perfectly. I'm going I'm to behave in a manner that is becoming of a king. As he's making a decision on what type of reign he's going to have, he says, I will behave myself in a perfect manner. You know, it's interesting. Nobody tells the king how he has to behave. Only the king can make that decision for himself. And the truth is, nobody can tell you how to behave. You have to make that decision for yourself. David's decision was, I will behave myself in a wise and perfect manner. King Saul had the same power, had the same opportunity, but with that power, his mind grew in pride, his heart grew in pride, and guess what? He ended his reign in absolute misery because he was a man that did not make a decision to walk perfectly before God. What's funny, or what's unique is, you see David asks a question here, Oh, when wilt thou come unto me? Meaning, if he's going to make this decision to walk before God, he was going to have to employ God's services to help him do it. The Christian life is not one lived in the flesh. Meaning, you can't just muster up the excitement to live for God. You can't just say one day, you know what? I'm going to live for God today and all of a sudden start doing it. It's not a... It's not a mind decision. It's not a dedication of commitment. If you're going to live for God, you must get God to help you live for Him. If God wants to get glory in your life, if you could do it by yourself, then God wouldn't deserve the glory. God wants you to decide to live for Him, but then go to God and say, Lord, I'm going to need you if I'm going to do this. I need your help. David wasn't capable of doing it. He says, not only, oh, when wilt thou come unto me? He said, I will walk within my house with a perfect heart. What does this mean? It means that David decided not only to be a good king, a godly king on the throne in public, he decided to be so in his bedroom in private. Let me tell you something that might be hard for you to hear. You are as precisely spiritual as you are when nobody's around and you're all alone in the privacy of your own home. Where does he say he's going to do this? He says, oh, I'm going to behave myself wisely. I will walk within my own house perfectly. When nobody sees me, when there's no accountants, when there's no helpers and no aides, I'm going to live for God. And David's a man of integrity. He says, I'm going to be the same man when I'm making decisions for Israel as I am, (coughs) excuse me, And I've had four weeks now going on. I can't get rid of this cough. David says, I'm going to be the same man when I'm making decisions for Israel as I am when I am on uh, on the throne of my bed all alone in private when nobody sees me. Somebody once said that reputation is what everybody believes you are. Your character is what you really are. David just said, you know what? If I'm going to live the Christian life, it cannot be something that I turn on and turn off. 
I am either going to live for God at all times of the day, or I'm not going to live for Him at all. And David says, I'm going to walk with God all the time. He made a decision to be a perfect of high character. Are you a, perf- are you a, Christ- a, a Christian that's decided that you're going to live for God? I know it sounds unique, but I was just thinking over here as the ladies are singing that song, Not my will, but thine be done. You can only pray that prayer if you believe God is good. You can only pray that prayer if you think that God will not withhold something from you in order to, pray, in order to accomplish that task. You see, the reason we want our will is we think our will is better than God's. But if we pray the prayer, not my will, but thine be done, if we believe that at the end of the day, God is good, we can say, God, I know you're good, so if I pursue your will, every need of my life, every joy will be fulfilled. I will trust in you. It's actually, if you believe those things, I was sitting over thinking in my chair, it is quite ridiculous to then seek our own will. Because a sovereign God in heaven has said, I will never disappoint you. I will never let you down. But if you can pray a prayer that says, not my will, but thine be done, I will meet the needs of your life. Have you been a Christian that's able to pray that prayer and say, God, I will trust you. I will live for you, but I will live for you not only in public, I will live for you in private. I will be a Christian of perfect character. This world is bombarding us as adults as well as our teenagers with all sorts of wicked and immoral things. Will you make a decision today that you'll just live for God? Live for God when nobody else sees. Live for God. If If every secret of your life was made manifest, will you be a person that will live for God even in the privacy of your own home? David was a man with a proper concept of God. He was a man of perfect character. Notice thirdly, he was a man of planned conduct. Verse number 3, he said, I will set no wicked thing before mine eyes. I hate the work of them that turn aside. It shall not cleave to me. A froward heart shall depart from me. I will not know a wicked person. I think maybe within our congregation this morning, there's somebody thinking in the back of their mind, yeah, well, here's a guy that made all these plans, made all these decisions, and at the end of the day, he failed. He was a hypocrite. He He sinned with Bathsheba. Here's a guy that set out to be holy and and made a mistake. Hypocrites are people that place upon others standards that they themselves are not willing to live under. David wasn't a hypocrite. David had the highest standards for himself. The fact that he failed to live up to his standards shows precisely why he was a man after God's own heart. He was a man that said, I want to be so good and so holy and so righteous for my God that even his own efforts with God's enabling couldn't, he was not able to keep the standards that he had set for himself. Do you have high standards? Set your standards so high in the Christian life that you, there's no way you can achieve them. That way when you fail, you'll be a lot higher than the guy that never had any standards at all. A lot of people look at David and say, yeah, he's a failure. No, he's not a failure. Most of his ministry and most of his reign is characterized by godliness and faithfulness to the Lord. And he had a plan. Someone said uh, uh, years ago, I think it was Mike Tyson, the great theologian, Mike Tyson, who said, Every ha- everybody has a plan until they're punched in the face. Yeah, and I can tell you, you get a plan set in place, and then when things start to happen, things need to be adjusted. But at least David had a plan. Number one, here was his plan. He said, uh, I will protect my eyes. Verse 3, I will set no wicked thing before my eyes. 
don't, don't put in front of yourself things that are ungodly and that distract you from living for God. Job said it like this, I have made a covenant with my eyes. I have made a covenant with my eyes, meaning I just won't look at certain things and I just won't behold certain things. There are certain things that help me live for God and there are certain things that don't help me live for God. I have chosen to not allow those things in my life that will deter me for living from God. Proverbs chapter 4, verse 25 says, Let thine eyes look right on and let thine eyelids look straight before thee. You know what that verse is teaching? To have an intentional focus. Don't be so haphazard with the way that we look at things. Intentionally focus on things that are good, perfect, and lovely, and virtuous, and helpful to the Christian life. I was looking yesterday at those horses that have blinders on their eyes. I found out that there are two different types of blinders that horses use. On carriage horses, they put blinders on the side of their eyes so that they cannot see distractions on the side of the road. On race horses, they put blinders not on the side, but only behind so that they cannot see what's going on behind them. Friend, if you don't have any blinders, you're wrong. I don't know what kind of blinders you have, but you ought to have some blinders. There ought to be some things that you just will not set before your eyes. David said, I will set no wicked thing before mine eyes. That horse is not effective if he's distracted by the things of this world. So he says, number one, I'll protect my eyes. Number two, he said, I will ponder my feet. Notice verse three. I hate the work of them that turn aside. It shall not cleave to me. Now this is kind of helpful to understand. He does not say, I hate those that turn aside. He says, I hate the work of them. Here's a king who's following a man by the name of Saul. Who at a time, David loved Saul and served Saul and faithfully played his harp for Saul and bore Saul's armor. And yet David watched as Saul's reign devolve from being a man who began in humility to at the end of his life is soothsaying so that he might find some spiritual encouragement. To a man who's sacrificing on his own terms because he's too impatient to wait for the way that God wants him to do it. David watched as Saul began the right way and finished the wrong way. And he says, I hate the work of them that it's turned aside. Those that started well, whose feet were on the right path, and then for some reason their feet are now on the wrong path. Many of us set out in the Christian life to live for God, but the question is not whether you'll live for Him today. The question is whether you'll be living from him for, for Him years from now. David was concerned about his legacy. David's looking at a king who now has just ruined his testimony and given many uh, of the enemies of God great occasion to blaspheme the Lord. And he says, I just don't want to turn out like Saul. I want to be a man who not only starts well, I want to be a man who finishes well. David said, that kind of work, the kind of work that turns aside, that's not going to stick to me. I've made a decision that my feet are on the right path today, and by God's grace, they're going to be on the right path tomorrow. The Bible teaches us that God hath brought us up out of horrible pit and out of the miry clay, and He has put us our feet on a solid rock. And this is what the verse says, 
And He has established our goings. You know what that means? Like an archer sends an arrow, God has directed our life. If you're living for God today, if you believe you're right today, then there's nothing that should change 20 years from now. You should be more godly. You should be more spiritual. You should be more committed to the cause of Christ, but certainly not less. And the sad truth is, as I look around the auditorium today, as I pass through our communities throughout the week, I see people who began well for God, who for one reason or another just faded away. We make a decision today to ponder your feet. If you're on the right path today, will you pray by God's grace you'll be on the right path 10 years from now? David was a man considering the path of his feet. But thirdly, he said, I will preserve my heart. Notice what he says in verse 4. A froward heart shall depart from me. I will not know a wicked person. This word froward means perverse or unyielding. It speaks of a man who's hardened his heart against God so that he pursues only his, his decisions and his choices instead of yielding to the Lord. Your heart is... The heart of the issue. Your heart is what God wants to to take control of. Your heart determines your passions. Your heart determines your direction. Your heart determines it all. And that's why the Bible says, Keep thy heart with all diligence, for out of it are the issues of life. Have you ever heard somebody... Uh, cuss and say such perverse things and bad things, and then somebody might say, no, they have a dirty mouth. They don't have a dirty mouth. They have a dirty heart. The mouth is simply the conduit through which that heart is spewing its contents. We don't have dirty mouths. Mamas that wash their kids' mouths out with soap, they should have been having them drink bleach. But maybe not that. Maybe not that. But (laughs) maybe that's not the best practical advice from the pulpit. But the problem with children's mouths is not their mouth, it's their heart. And the problem with Christians that aren't living for God, the problem is not, uh, it, it's not their intentions, it is their motivations. It's their heart. David says, I will not have a perverse heart. He even prays in Psalm 51 in his repentance prayer. You know what he says? Thou desirest truth in the inward parts. To the very core of my being, you want me to be sincere and authentic before you. You don't want any of this facade, fake Christian living. You want me to live for you and be right with you to the very core of my being, down into the heart. He says, and as I mentioned, David was not a perfect man. He was a man who failed on many occasions. In fact, if you compare them, David's trespasses against God's uh, 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 against God seemed to be significantly worse than did Saul's. The difference was David was a man who understood that God is a God of mercy. First John chapter 2 says, These things I write unto you that, that no man sin. Okay, that's verse 1. Second part of that verse says, And if any man sin... Wait a minute, hold on... <laughs> Wasn't the verse, didn't we just say the whole point of the verse was that no man sinned? The whole point of the book was that no man sinned? He says, uh, these things I write that no man sinned. But if any man sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. None of us will live a perfect life, but praise the Lord, when we do live imperfectly before God, we have an advocate with the Father that's willing to extend grace and mercy and forgiveness. David was a man who understood all of that. 
He's a man who set out to have a proper concept of God. He had a right estimation of God, so the trajectory of his life was on course. He is a man that set out to have perfect character. Thirdly, he was a man of planned conduct. He set out with a plan. It didn't always work, but at least he had a plan. Do you have a plan for how you're going to live for God? Do you have a plan? Fourthly, he had a prescribed cabinet. Now, this is interesting. The verses 5 through 8, David now begins to contemplate the type of people that he will have working alongside him. Uh, We have our president, and our president selects his cabinet. The people that will help him run certain uh, areas of government, make certain decisions. He doesn't oversee every single thing, so he develops a cabinet. And David is now considering the type of people that will help him accomplish this reign in Israel. Notice what he says, verse number 6. Verse number 5, I'm sorry. Whoso privily slandereth his neighbor, him will I cut off. Here's a guy that's just critical. One that cuts down his neighbor in the interest that he might be raised up. You ever seen somebody else like that? That the only way they think they can get ahead is by pulling down on somebody else's shoulders? And that's what David's speaking of here. Whoso privily slandereth his neighbor, him will I cut off. I don't need anybody like that in my kingdom. Him that hath a high look and a proud heart will not I suffer. People that are prideful. People that think they have all the answers. I don't need that kind of guy. Mine eyes shall be upon the faithful of the land, they that dwell with me. He that walketh in a perfect way, he shall serve me. He that worketh deceit shall not dwell within my house. He that telleth lies shall not tarry in my sight. God created us as relational beings. In fact, as He got done with creation, He said the only thing that wasn't good was that man was alone. And so He created for man a help meet. He created us as emotional and relational beings in the sense that we, are, we desire to have a relationship with Him. And we will have a relationship with other Christians. We are born into a family of relationships. We get born again and we're baptized into a family of relationships. We are very relational creatures. But I wonder if you've ever considered what type of relationships you have. I recently read a story of two hunters that chartered a plane to take them to kind of a a distant hunting ground. uh, And they uh, requested to be taken and dropped off for about a week. And then the pilot was to come back and pick them up in the very same area that they had been hunting all week long. The pilot took them, dropped them off. They hunted the week. The pilot went to pick them back up. After a week, they had shot two of these very large buffalo. The pilot landed and said, guys, I'm telling you... Our plane is not big enough to carry you, all your gear, and the two buffalo that you've got. You've got to shed one of the buffalo. We can only take one of them. The guys were disappointed. They said, well, we came all this way. The last pilot didn't have a problem with it. The guy said, you've done this before? They said, yeah, we've done it before. Uh, He didn't seem to have an issue with it. He said, well, I guess if you've done it before, I guess I'll just take your word on it. So the pilot loaded everything up, all their gear, both the men, both of their trophies that they had harvested. They get on the plane, the pilot takes off, and like the pilot had initially anticipated, the plane did not have the lift and crashed into a nearby hillside. Once the wreckage was kind of cleared, the two friends climbed out of the wreckage and said, where are we at? The one hunting pal looked to the other and said, I think we're about two miles from the place we wrecked last time. Have you ever noticed how your friends can really bring you down? 
the people that you hang around with and fellowship with, they can really discourage your uh, willingness to live for the Lord. David makes three priorities in the people that he put around him. Number one, he says, faithful people. Faithful people. Verse 6, mine eyes shall be upon the faithful of the land. Where is faithfulness in terms of your friendships? Years ago, I didn't want uh, red-headed children. And people would always ask me, why don't you want redheads? Why don't you want red-headed children? Don't you want to carry on the legacy? I said, no. They said, why not? I said, because no girl growing up says, I want to marry someone tall, red, and handsome. <laughs> Nobody says that. They all want to marry somebody tall, dark, and handsome. You know, there, there is a segment of ladies that really, really like red hair. They just have gray hair. Okay? And so, everybody's like, well, you, you know, you shouldn't be that way. I just was. So when I wanted to have children, I wanted them to have darker hair. And praise the Lord, He answered that prayer. That's why I married a Native American young lady. It's, Come on, Pocahontas, get them dark hair as much as you can. <laughs> Me, John Smith, you do your thing, Pocahontas. I didn't want red-headed children. And so, uh, I had certain things that I wanted. If you were to rank in your list of priorities what you want in a friend, how high up would faithfulness to the Lord be? What's a shame is we set out all these things. It's like, well, if I want a friend, I want them to share my interests. I want them to crochet with me. I want them to go hunting with me. I want them to be a golfer so we can spend some time together. But where on the list would just a person that lives for God be? If you have God uniting your interests, you can get over the fact that one of you likes golf and the other one doesn't, I promise you. Are you willing to surround yourself with faithful people? Secondly, not only faithful people, but compatible people. Compatible in this sense, not in, oh, I like golf, he's got to like golf, or, oh, I like shopping, she's got to like shopping. No, what he says, he says, Mine eyes shall be upon the faithful of the land, that they may dwell with me. He that walketh in a perfect way... He shall serve me. What's interesting is in verse number 2, David has committed to the same perfect way. He says, I'm going to surround myself with people that will live in the same way that I want to live. I want to live for God. I want to be a man of integrity, both in public and in private. So here's what he's going to do. Surround himself with people of integrity. Men like Uriah. Who said, how can I go into my wife when the Ark of the Covenant and God's people are out on the battlefield? He had surrounded himself with godly men and in that moment, Uriah was more godly than the king was. Because he was a faithful man. And a man that was compatible to David in his faithful times. But notice, thirdly, he surrounded himself with honest people. Verse 7, He that worketh deceit shall not dwell within my house. He that telleth lies shall not tarry in my sight. Here this indicates a person that comes to the king and just tells the king whatever he wants to hear. You remember the teacher's pet in the class? You, that was kind of the idea here. This man comes to the king and just, Oh, king, you're so good. Oh, the king, that's definitely the right decision. And he's doing it in the intent of trying to get power and trying to get authority from the king. David says, I don't need yes men around me. I need spiritual men who are willing to tell me if I've messed up. I need men who are willing to look at the king who is supreme in authority and tell me I'm not living right. And isn't it interesting that it took a man just like this for God to use to come into David's kingdom and into his courtroom and say, David, there was a man that had a little lamb. It was like his own child. 
He brought him to the table. He fed him with his children. There was a rich man that had all these other sheep. He had tons of herds, tons of flocks. And that man had a guest come into town. And instead of taking from his big flock, he went over to the man that raised this one little sheep. That's all he had, a poor man. He took that sheep and dressed it for his friend. And David says, I can't believe that thing's taking place in my kingdom. Whoever this is, that man will die. He shall pay fourfold. And a man just like the one David is describing in this passage, he looks at King David and says, David, you are the man. You've committed a trespass. You're in the wrong. You're the one that's done evil in the sight of God. I wonder, do you have a a Nathan in your life? We surround ourselves with yes men that only encourage us and tell us that we're always making the right decision. Do you have somebody that in the interest of living for God will look at you and say, "Uh, you're not doing what God wants you to do. It It is not friendship to watch someone run away from God and just applaud them on Facebook. It is not friendship to like posts that are clearly evil just in the interest of maintaining a relationship. That's not friendship. Spiritual friendship looks at someone and says, Friend, there is nothing that I want more for you than that you would be right with the Lord. Faithful are the wounds of a friend. The kisses of an enemy are deceitful. (laughs) David put it like this. He says, let the righteous man smite me. (laughs) It shall be kindness. He says, if a righteous man wants to look at me and tell me that I'm doing something wrong, I'll hear it because it will be advantageous for me. So many times we surround ourselves in this life with people that are just trying to uh, get along with us. That's not friendship. Friendship is not getting along if it's at the expense of living for God. The idea of this entire message is each and every one of us need help living for God. I started the message by describing how utterly immoral and wicked our world is and yet God wants us to live for Him. If you don't have a plan on how you're living for God, I can promise you, you're not living for God. If you don't have certain practices in your life on how you can uh, avoid wicked things coming into your line of sight or, and how to make sure that the feet that your path are on today will be the, feet that, uh, the path that your feet are on 10 years from now. If you don't have those plans, you are not living for God. And if you don't surround yourself with people in your life that will help you and pray for you and encourage you in a right direction to live for the Lord, you're not going to be able to live for God. Will you decide today to just make a decision to live for God in this immoral day and age? If every dark alley has somebody suffering from the effects of sin, every church house had to have somebody willing to live for God to counteract that balance. You be that person. 